You're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon supporters. Become a patron today at patreon.com forward slash into the portal. Throughout time, there have been stories of those who have vanished. Individuals, and sometimes more, who seemingly disappear without a trace. For those who remain in their wake, the clues and facts left to unravel hopefully resolve their fate, painting a picture of their last moments, or, as in this case, creates a mystery that remains unexplained to this day. What makes this story even more bizarre, however, is that this vanishing took place in a heavily populated and high-traffic area off the coast of wartime San Francisco. On August 16th, 1942, a military airship was sent crashing into the homes and power lines of Daly City, California. The massive gray balloon and carriage narrowly missing catching fire and terrifying local residents. Crews, of course, rushed to the scene, but only to find its gondola empty. The two airship pilots were nowhere to be found and had seemingly vanished into thin air. After flying for hours and taking an eight-mile detour, the realization was clear. Flight 101 was a ghost ship. But what exactly became of the two pilots? And how did the airship find its way into the streets of this California town? Join us on Into the Portal for an absolutely bizarre case from World War II. Mystery of Flight 101. Hello, I'm Amber A. And I'm Andrew McKay. And welcome back into the portal, your gateway to the bazaar. On this episode, take a journey with us into the World War II mystery of the infamous ghost blimp and two vanished military pilots off the coast of California. Mm. So we're going back to the summer of 1942, where off the coast of California, two pilots in a military airship vanished mid-flight, without a trace, leading to one of the most bizarre events in California history, certainly of Dolly City. Absolutely. It's, uh, it's truly a bizarre story, and it gets, it gets weirder, weirder as we go along here. Mm-hmm. So yeah, welcome back, everybody. It's been a hot sec since we've been, uh, been on the mic here. It feels like it's been a while. It has, and we actually have an unintended guest for this recording. Mm, indeed. Which might actually play into some of the fun theories we have coming up, but uh, we've got 
our own well, I'm going to call it electronic fog. It's really just white noise. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, a little bit of a mishap on the fourth floor of our condo building. And uh, luckily on the opposite side of the hall from us, but there was a uh, yeah, a bit of bit of water damage. So there's been a, a fan blasting for about a week and a half straight out there. We were hoping it wouldn't be there for today's recording, but I'm sure you guys can't even hear it anyway. It's just a bit of white noise for us here in the yeah. ITP studio. <laughs> so let's jump right into this. Mm-hmm. And Kicking things off, honestly, with a little bit of history, like we always do, because the impetus for this incident, if you will, was really go- goes back to Pearl Harbor and mm-hmm. the attack at Pearl Harbor. And we all know this, right? This was a naval base at Pearl Harbor, Honolulu, territory of Hawaii, and of course was attacked by the Japanese just before 0800 hours on Sunday morning of December 7th, 1941. And this is what led the U.S. uh, into the the Second World War, their formal entry into the Mm. war, right? We all learned this in school. But for some more context, though, this is what was going on in the rest of the world. So until essentially the winter of 42-43, the German army was doing their thing, okay? Victorious, almost unbroken chain of success in their battles, and Europe was in a very precarious situation. They essentially lay under German domination. So things were very much so up in the air. And I wrote it in here, pun intended, because, I mean, it wasn't really intended. I did write it in that way, but I realized it after the fact. But things were truly up in the air. I mean, the US, if the U.S. hadn't entered, who knows how things oh, would gosh. have gone. Mm-hmm. But for America, there was a real fear following Pearl Harbor that certainly since the Japanese had the technology and the will to attack the United States, that they believed it was entirely possible for there to be a submarine attack right on the West Coast, right at their doorstep, possibly even near a major city like San Francisco, Los Angeles, something like this. And this was definitely a justified fear. It was really soon after the attack on Pearl Harbor that there was just this, just this happened, which is kind of insane, you guys, okay? Mm -hmm. There was a Japanese submarine attack on an oil refinery and basically an entire oil field right off the coast of Los Angeles. And this was the first attack of the war on the continental United States. So obviously Hawaii is a little further out. This is getting a little bit precariously close to much denser populations of the United States, right? It's bringing the war home. Crazy. And this is actually a little piece of history that actually ties back into our Franklin expedition episode. This was the first time that the U.S. had been attacked on the mainland since the British were shelling New Orleans in the War of 1812, no which involved one of those two ships in that uh, in that expedition. I can't remember which one. Right. Right? Yeah, I think it was Erebus, if I'm not mistaken. I believe so. Mm-hmm. Go back and check that out. You guys can let us know. A little bit of trivia there from the Franklin ep- episodes. But this is essentially how this went down. Kind of spooky stuff. So this was February 23rd, 1942, the following year after Pearl Harbor. And Japanese commander Kozo Nishino, I think I'm saying that correctly, (laughs) commander of the Japanese Imperial Navy, he was in command of a particular submarine, a 117 U-boat, Japanese sub, that was positioned off the coast of California. So three months after the attack on Pearl Harbor, you know, Kind of sketchy territory, right? They waited until after dark. The Japanese submarine surfaced and essentially began firing what's been described as armor-piercing shells. And this was an attack on the Bankline Oil Company refinery in Elwood, California, which is a small community located about 10 to 12 miles north of Santa Barbara, if I'm correct. California listeners, you know, shout us out, correct me if I'm wrong, shout out to Cryptid Campfire and uh, some of our friends in California. (laughs) But they were targeting 
oil storage tanks, right? Piers and other facilities that were allegedly once actually toured by Japanese officials prior to the war as sort of a part of uh, diplomatic missions and things like that. So fishy business, Little reconnaissance, eh? Exactly. Actually, specifically, Commander uh, Nishiro was said to have personally toured this specific refinery himself (gasps) prior to the war. That's very sneaky. Mm, Indeed. (laughs) Luckily, no one was killed or injured, but several of the shells did actually strike, where others went clean over a place that's called Wheeler's Inn. And this is a quote from the owner. We heard a whistling noise and a thump as a projectile hit near the house. And then another witness recalled, I thought something was going wrong with uh, the refiners. Like it was an explosion or something was drastically wrong with the actual refinery itself. Allegedly, according to one source, there was about two dozen rounds fired, and then the submarine did escape into darkness, no permanent massive damage and no loss of life. But obviously this was a big wake up call for Washington because things were getting really close. Well, that's just it. They started to realize they were quite vulnerable on their coastlines and these submarines, obviously they're quite sneaky. You need something in the air patrolling the coast. So it was after this incident that Washington basically realized they had neither the warships nor aircraft uh, that was able to defend over 12,000 miles of coastline against these enemy subs and <laughs> potentially lurking offshore at any moment. So, yeah. you know, the fear was really real. And it's, it's the fear of the unknown. It's that ambiguous, like, you never know. Because obviously Pearl Harbor was a wake-up call. It that was a huge surprise, yeah. surprise for everybody. And so now the the U.S. was definitely on the hyper-defensive mode. And so they decided to turn to blimps to kind of help their maritime defenses. Yeah. According to, this is like military history archives and things like that, there were actually more than 10,000 airship pilots. And there were gunners, there were mechanics, there was a whole organization dedicated to these sort of patrols. Yeah. And basically, yeah, they had over 400,000 flying hours and over 37,000 successful patrols. Yeah, it's a lot. Yeah, no, they were they were a very effective defense, I would say, in monitoring these advances or perceived advances in Japanese activity on the Western coast. It makes and, a lot of sense. Like, think, like, mm. rather than just planes zipping back and forth, and obviously that's really expensive, it's like, yeah. blimps make sense for patrolling coastline. You're high up, slow. you can spot subs. They're you can calm. Drop depth, tra- depth charges or whatever they, they call those, right? Well, exactly. That's just it. Because in my head, I'm like, well, they are slow. But because of that, they're not just zipping over. Exactly. They're, like, really monitoring. So they can really get a good picture of what's going on. And they were part of this series called the L-Class. And the specific airship we're talking about today is the L-8. Yes. And so this was, uh, I think it was a crew, I think it was 12 of them, a dozen or so in the fleet. Uh, We'll get into that in a second here. Mm -hmm. Uh, We did want to give some general characteristics of this type of class of blimp, uh, just so people have a better idea. Because, like, you know, for me, I was, I just always think of these things as, like, massive balloons. You know what I mean? 100%. Like, Like a massive hot air balloon but with a frame i guess i think people think like like the hindenburg like passenger zeppelins and like huge honking that's like that's what i picture when i of course because there's obviously different classes of these types of things and this was not a passenger this was uh dedicated to like a two-man crew kind of thing very much so in in the mind of like surveillance mode kind of thing for sure 
<laughs> we'll go for feet for all of our, like, you know, our U.S. friends and obviously a lot of people in Canada. <laughs> too. But these were approximately 150 feet in length. Um, they had a diameter of about 40 feet, you know, a height of about 35 feet uh, volume. I don't know if this will mean anything to anybody here. <laughs> <laughs> Over 100,000 cubic feet in volume. So they are quite large. But again, right, like, it's just like a big balloon, essentially. I always think of, am I thinking of, uh, oh, my gosh, is it 007? They had, like, a, a blimp fight where they're, yeah. like, in a... No, totally. There was, I think it was, like, Or the was it sec- Mission Impossible? No, it was totally was a, a Bond movie. I remember having the video game for PlayStation 1 with Pierce Brosnan, where you, <laughs> I think it's the world is not enough or something like that, where you have to uh, cling on to a rope that's, like, dangling from a blimp in oh, that in that really? first or second level or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. I can't remember which one. I feel like, yeah, it was definitely one of those earlier ones. And like we said, though, like these aren't going very fast, like their maximum speeds, they max out about 60 kilometers or sorry, 60 miles. Ooh, a little faster. 96 kilometers, which honestly, that's pretty fast in my opinion. I'm I'm assuming they don't get up to that speed quite right away. Right, right. Their cruising speed is like 46 miles per hour. So, but I mean, it does sound very fast to picture a blimp going 100, 100 (laughs) kilometers an hour. And they could be up there for quite a long time too, like almost 12 hours. Yeah. So really like these were made to be patrol vehicles. Definitely. Transport, if you're not in a rush. And of course we all know the Goodyear advertising blimp. This is actually the same blimp the L8. It was actually converted after the war. So that's yeah. a fun fact. And I th- just recently, that blimp was in the news, I, I think. Like, really? just last week or a couple of weeks ago, I remember, uh, uh, shout out to Somewhere in the Skies podcast, they posted something about it being, like, again, sighted and it was like a UFO sighting and it ended up just being a Goodyear blimp. <laughs> again. I that's think this funny. has happened many times, but anyway. It's effective for Goodyear. Hey, everyone associates them with the blimp. 100%. It's great. But as far as we could tell through our research, this is... Was and is a really solid ship. It had a history of successful flights, no real problems to note. No. Uh, and obviously, like, it, it successfully managed to fly in a lot of extreme conditions. Yeah. Severe weather, no damage. So on the day like today, the one we're looking at, it is very odd that anything would have gone wrong, like mechanically or otherwise. Yeah. You know what I from mean? From weather or from whatever. Yeah. Unless like a bird just flew in and out. I'm just I mean, that's a big ass <laughs> pelican if that's Anyways, what happened. Before we get into that. <laughs> so like we said, uh, that day they were flying this L8 and it was very well equipped for protecting the coastline. It actually did have these things known as depth charges mm-hmm. and they're, they were equipped with two of them and they were 325 pounds mounted on an external rack. Yeah. They also did have a machine gun and over 300 rounds of ammunition. So if they were in trouble, they did have defenses aboard to help them. And that's when we get into the theories. We're going to get into all the complications of what really, you know, the intricacies of what was going on here. So that day, the blimp had an official mission. They were just to locate and sink any potential subs of the enemy. So the Japanese were talking here, potentially even the Germans, too. Ooh, I mean, yeah. Spotted it anywhere near San Francisco off the bay. So that fateful day, August 16th, 1942, the crew took off in the early morning, sailing over the coast of Treasure Island located in San Francisco Bay. Their mission, one of routine, like we said, to search for these enemy submarines and sink them. 
It can't be understated the importance of their task to protect these American interests uh, from encroaching Japanese. They had already successfully sunk over half a dozen U.S. vessels and had caused significant damage, like we said already, to this offshore yeah. drilling rig. Mm-hmm. And this was just over a series of nine months that they had been engaged in war. So again, these two men that were the pilots of this airship were scheduled to run a 50-mile stretch. It was a fairly circular flight path around the bay. Yeah. Heading towards the Farallon Islands that were about 25 miles off the coast and then heading north towards a place called Ray's Point before returning to Treasure Island in San Francisco Bay. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, actually. I didn't. I love that name, Treasure Island, and it's actually an artificial island. Yeah. Uh, it was built in the 1930s, and it's just off Oakland. It's such a area. cool, like when you look at the map, I've never been to San Francisco, but it's just such a, the Bay area and then north of like the actual Bay itself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The Treasure Island's there. And it, it looks like there's like a bridge that connects the island and, and uh, yeah, man-made. And I think it was used for military purposes and now it's residential. It looked beautiful. Like when I, when I Googled it, it was like, wow, I'm sure that's some mm. pretty swanky properties on Treasure Island these days. I don't know, but not uh, like Alcatraz, not like <laughs> Alcatraz. No. Slightly cheaper real estate on Alcatraz. Oh, yes, indeed. So that day, like we said, there were two pilots inside the gondola of the L-8 airship. Uh, It was Ernest Duet Cody, who was age 27, and Charles Ellis Adams, age 38. Yeah. So let's get into some details on these guys, because obviously that's going to be potentially how we figure out what what went wrong or what happened here. I did want to just say, uh, because you you gave the details on how the blimp was equipped with the depth charges and the the machine gun mount and all that, and I'm like, I wonder if they ever used that machine gun against enemy subs or anything like that. Like, that would be a sight to behold, you know what I mean? Like a blimp hovering over a... (laughs) A uh, surface surface submarine, and you're just like unloading like a you know. I mean, this is a 30 cal, not 50 cal, but isn't that just a scene out of James Bond again? Though? I know, right? Totally. <laughs> or, then, or Batman. <laughs> yeah, Batman with the shark repellent. He's like he's yeah lowering himself out of the blimp. Hand me the shark repellent, Robin. Uh, and then of course depth charges. I just have to. I mean, that just makes me want to watch Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. Every oh, single yeah. episode of that show, there was a depth charge rock in the submarine. <laughs> yeah. uh, but let's get into some details on these pilots because. There, let's just say this, it was difficult to find a lot of detail on their backgrounds. There's just sort of the vague information included in a lot of military archives, official Navy reports, and then mm-hmm. articles we've looked into. Yeah, like local historians and things of that exactly. nature. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Cody... Uh, Although he was technically the senior in command of the two pilots, he was the younger of the two, like Amber said. And according to sources we looked at, he was extremely well-respected and revel, revel, level-headed, excuse me. Uh, so according to his superiors, he was great under pressure. And this was corroborated by his senior officer at the time. I actually forgot to find the name of the senior officer. Please excuse me for that, you guys. I can find that at some point. But he was quoted as saying that Cody was one of the most capable pilots and one of the most able officers uh, under his command. So despite being the younger of the two, I mean, that was the first thing that came to my mind. I was like, okay, he's 27, this guy's 38, the younger one's in command. Maybe this just was some sort of a uh, an authority issue oh, that happened yeah. here. Mm-hmm. Um, but Cody didn't have a ton of blimp flight time and officially only about 756 hours of this light uh, of the blimp of the L8 specifically okay, flight that type time of class, yeah. while Adams although not uh, officially senior in position in the in the cabin let's say he had way more experience so obviously he's older he had been in 
been involved longer. Two hundred, a little over uh, two thousand, excuse me, hours of flight time. Hmm. So again, generalized, not to this specific class. Exactly, mm-hmm. not to this specific class, but just in in general of of blimp flight time. When I read into it, it seemed as though Adams he had a lot more experience with larger ships. Yes, versus this was a smaller ship for him. So I guess a new set of variables to kind of figure out. Absolutely, and actually, on that note of being involved with larger ships. I'm not going to go into detail now, but there was actually a connection between Adams and the Hindenburg disaster, oh, which yeah. is obviously a much larger blimp. Uh, not that he was piloting, obviously, or like involved in the crash, but we'll get back to that he, later. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So again, Cody, he's younger, he's technically senior, but he's relatively new to blimp routine flight. Not that this meant a whole lot, right? He was trained as a pilot and he did have a good record. And there's some examples going down here when we get into theories too, that you can kind of take Mm -hmm. one way or the other based on his experience. Mm -hmm. That's, we get into that quite a bit. Hey, this issue of experience with pilots Mm. and we go both ways with this sometimes because we say, Oh, he's got so many, he's got thousands of hours. So ergo, he might've been susceptible to pilots fatigue versus on the other end, we, we chalk it up to inexperience when they don't have like infinite amount of flight hours. Yeah. This goes back to the Frederick (laughs) Valentich, right? If you were a pilot, I feel like that'd be the most annoying thing to hear on a podcast. You're just like, you're just going back and forth. Like, you know, I it's know. like, you can't win either way. No, you really, you really can't. <laughs> no. And I think obviously the fact that these guys are in the military compared to like, oh, a, like a Valentich, yeah, it, a even though when you, when you, when you put the hours side by side, it's like, that's very similar. It's like, obviously not a ton of experience with this specific craft. Uh, but anyway, let's get, let's get back to these two guys here. So we do know that Adams was technically more experienced in airships than Cody, but he had only actually received his commission for this particular, like for the L-8 and to do these routine missions the day before their August 16th flight. So he was new. He was new to this okay. specifically. Making his very first LTA patrol as an officer under the younger the younger officer. So like I said, was this a source of some kind of contention aboard the flight that day? Uh, how well did these two know each other? I, it was really hard to find. I mean, obviously they would have known each other from the base. Mm-hmm. They would have had similar authorities in charge of them so there would have been maybe you know what i mean like they knew each other well they weren't but hey nice to meet you let's hop on the thing first time we've ever met before they're aware of each other's existence it does remind me again of a similar similarity like a parallel to the sl1 atomic explosion that we covered Mm. in uh the desert uh, the idaho desert and that again we it's all speculation to a certain degree obviously these two disappeared so we can't ask them and speculation abounded again, similar to the SL one, the two or sorry, the three that were killed in that incident. How well do they know each other again? And then all these human factors and all these things start to come into play. One key thing about, uh, this flight preparation though, here at, before we actually, uh, take off in this L one for continuing the story here, there was actually supposed to be one more passenger aboard that day. And this is really key. We'll get into this in more detail later. But there was the two passengers, Adams and Cody, and then there was supposed to be aviation machinist Riley Hill accompanying them on the flight. I guess you would, wouldn't really call them passengers, call them pilots. Crewmen. Sorry. I mean, <laughs> cr- crewmen. I mean, yeah. I mean, sorry, like for witnesses, I guess. Like, I mean, yeah. They're right. passengers aboard. I mean, yeah, they're not sitting there waiting for the peanuts in the back seat. <laughs> no, very, very true. Getting into semantics here. But... 
aviation machinists Riley Hill. What I mean, these guys were intimately involved in every pre-flight everything, right? Like they essentially prepped everything. The pilots piloted mm-hmm. the ship, but the machinists were the one getting everything ready to go. The fuel. Yeah. Everything, right? Exactly. Same as on a runway. The pilots aren't doing it at an airport, no, right? They have their own set of instrumentations and presumably, yeah, they're controlling them while the flight's taking place. Exactly. And he was interviewed multiple times after this event. Uh, but one particular interview in the 2000s, he had a few interesting things to say. But he stated that he was supposed to be among the pilots that morning. He was supposed to be flying with them. He actually set up the controls for them. Yeah. yeah. And it makes sense because if this was uh, Adams's very first flight, on that patrol. Sure, he's an experienced in, in blimp flight, but it makes sense to have a mechanic on board, potentially, like yeah. for your first one. That kind of makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, he, he was responsible for prepping the aircraft, and he was on board, but he basically was asked to leave. And he stated later that it was kind of inexplicable why. He was never given a reason. He was basically told, we've got this, uh, Riley, you can you can exit. You can, you can get off. Yeah, and then some accounts will point to the idea that there was heavy moisture, uh, which basically said that the blimp couldn't carry that weight load. So he was asked to leave. Okay, so here's the thing. So again, we can talk about this more in theories. But yeah, he said that. He's like, I thought maybe because of heavy moisture that morning, it was a foggy morning, allegedly, that that was the reason why. But these ships were capable of carrying more than that amount of weight. So it's like that would have been a very precautionary thing to do. It's like it was more than capable of carrying three men, even with humidity. And also that led that quote led to a bunch of speculation on the weather that day. So if you guys go online and you read articles on this, you'll see a bunch that's basically say terrible weather, right? Bad weather in the morning, horrible visibility, leading off of what hill said like heavy fog all this kind of stuff the reality was is that it was a little foggy that morning Mm -hmm. and the rest of the day was a very clear awesome day for flying yeah exactly and you do look at the images of this blimp as it was flying through the air and the visibility is great and you look at the the crash land site there's lots of pictures from that it seems like a very clear day (laughs) very clear day but again and before we move into the flight itself because i'm I'm chomping at the bit here because i'm just like i love this story so much even though it's kind of sad what did both of them ask Riley to leave or just one of them is my question. He didn't state that. He kind of implied that both of them were like, okay, Riley, it's all mm, good. I would imagine to be the senior officer. You would imagine so. But I mean, it, who is really seen as the senior officer though? Like if this other guy's had more flight, if he's talking to the machinist. It's, it just comes down to like brass tacks as far as your hierarchy. on this Yeah, scale, on right? paper, yeah. but not in guys' egos and mental states, True. right? And again, I will point to, just because it's so fresh in my head, the SL1 incident where it was a lot of, uh, what's it called? Uh, big just, ego, man. Yeah, well, not a big ego, but just uh, inability to submit to authority. Oh, for Inability sure. Inability to recognize, yeah, the authority of your um, commanding officers. Right. No, and, very true. Very true. Uh, well, yeah, but we don't know. We don't have anything to point to that. We don't have any statement saying these w- these people had anger problems or they had insubordination issues or anything like that. No. Nothing like that on their records. So let's get into the flight. This was interesting. Just trying to track the sort of path around the bay mm-hmm. and, and out into, obviously, the coast and everything like that. Right. So, essentially, everything started out just fine. They took off from Treasure Island, they passed over the Golden Gate Bridge, and were heading southwest towards the Farallon Islands. All was calm, 
visibility fine, mm-hmm. despite some reports and many articles that will say it's a misty morning or a foggy day or all this stuff, which may well have been the case in the AM. But like we said, it evidently had cleared up because we do have multiple witnesses of this blimp in flight. Yes. And even witness reports of seeing the men inside. Yeah. All right. So about an hour and a half into the patrol, the crewmen reported their position at about four miles east off of the Farallon Islands. They reported via radio back to base that there was a suspicious oil slick. And this was about four minutes later after. So they had radioed once, then they radio again. And they say that they're going to investigate. This was the exact quote. It says, I'm investigating suspicious oil slick. Stand by. Mm -hmm. So after they reported that they would investigate further, they dropped two flares known as Mark IV aircraft float lights, which was a common flare used throughout the 30s and into the Second World War. Yeah. At this time, it was about 7.42 a.m. The two flares were dropped Two ships actually witnessed them and the blimp itself. This was actually the last time the two airmen would be seen inside the gondola of the airship. Right. Before vanishing into thin air. The Daisy Gray, which was a fishing vessel, and the Albert Gallatin, which was a Liberty ship, uh, a common type of ship. uh, It was a Navy freighter vessel constructed by the Americans during World War II. Yeah. Basically to guard the coastline. So the Gallatin was manning her guns while the Daisy Gray pulled up her fishing nets because she was afraid, the crew was afraid, that they would get caught in the middle of a depth charge uh, aimed at this enemy sub. It seemed as though this blimp was descending to investigate. Obviously, from their position on, on the coast, like, they couldn't really see anything. Right. Because of the angle. Could you imagine that feeling? It's like you're a fishing vessel and just the... Just the image of, like, a massive Japanese, like, nuclear sub, like, going underneath you. Uh, That's crazy. That would be terrifying. I don't know if I would be on the sea. Be on the sea. (laughs) It's hard enough to get me on the ocean. Yeah, you don't do well with water as a base. Yeah, yeah, I'm not into that at all. (laughs) All right, so both ships uh, watched as the crewmen aboard the L-8 airship continued on in a sort of a circular path. After they dropped the initial flares, they were expecting charges to be released. However, this never occurred. Yeah. At one point, the crew of the Daisy Gray were actually so close to the ship, they could see the blonde and brown hair of the two airmen. (laughs) Which is wild. I mean, that's pretty close. Pretty close. At one point, it was described as being as close as 30 feet above the sea line. And it looked as though they were trying to examine something at close range. So again, this does support the idea that they were investigating what appeared to be something suspicious in the water. Mm -hmm. The story goes that the blimp continued on this sort of weird circular-ish course until, well, it's not weird, but it's just like a circular, aimless sort of seeming course until 9 a.m. So this is almost an hour and a half later when it was then seen by um, the two ship crews still to drop ballast Basically, that means it's dropping weight so it can rise. Yes. And start to head back towards the Bay Area. So the entire time this happened, the blimp remained silent over airwaves. Its last registered report at 7.42 a.m. Right. So this was when Hmm. they had 
basically radioed that they were going to investigate. So, no, yeah, like, and nobody was concerned, I guess. Well, like, that's just it. So back at headquarters, uh, this airship squadron 32, um, the alarm actually wasn't raised until about 8.20 because it wasn't really considered that unusual for them these airships to lose contact and connection from time to time while right. they were over the water. I knew there was something like that. Right, right, right. We've talked about this before, even the... <sighs> The complications of water and moisture in the air affecting radio communications and things of that nature. Totally. And perhaps even some electronic fog, but we'll get into that. (laughs) Um, But as time continued to pass, um, the command started to get worried. They were, they began frantically attempting to reach these two airmen, Cody and Adams, but to no avail. There was no response on the other end. Uh, meanwhile, they actually had no idea where the ship actually was. They had no communication. <laughs> yeah. I guess they couldn't see it on radar. They were just blind. And so they had sent out two uh, seaplanes, actually, two Kingfisher seaplanes at about 8.50 in the morning out to search for this airship. But it took a hot sec to actually find them. Uh, it was actually 10.49 that the airship was spotted over the Golden Gate Bridge by a pan-American pilot. He kind of reported there was nothing that appeared wrong with the blimp, and it looked as though it was under control still. Being piloted still. Being piloted, potentially. It didn't seem as though it was careening out of control. It didn't seem like it was going up to uh, dangerous heights in the air. Right. Uh, but again, right, he didn't actually see the pilots, so we don't know. Then, 10 minutes later, the Kingfisher airplane reported L-8's position three miles west of Salada Beach. Shortly after this, an army pilot spotted the blimp near Mile Rock, and he actually reported nothing amiss. Uh, he assumed it was heading to Treasure Island, so heading back to its, uh, its original position. Right. And then a few minutes later this, there was another man by the name of Richard Quam, who was actually just heading to the day, uh, sorry, heading to the beach for a day. Yeah. And he was driving along the highway between San Mateo and San Francisco when he too spotted this blimp. And it was in the distance. It seemed as though it was bent in the middle. Mm-hmm. So this was the first time that something was indicating there was an issue with this blimp. And it actually indicated that it had surpassed its ceiling. So it has a pressure height of 2,000 feet. Yes. And so when it reaches that height, it'll start to um, release, oh my gosh, the ballast. Yes. So basically a ballast had dropped and it basically had like kind of almost like, how would you, it didn't shear the airship in half. It basically like. It kind of like bent it yeah i mean it, how would you describe it, that? it started to deflate essentially like kind there was of. collapsing in the middle and it looks like there's some massive damage and that's like one of the most famous photographs is of it yeah. kind of like collapsing in the middle but it, it is just yeah like ballast dropping and gas yeah. uh gas cells exploding basically like breaking and it, it's just deflating yeah. it's just deflating in the middle exactly and the, the ballast dropping is actually a safety precaution to, to avoid the full explosion of all the gas cells. And it's kind of crazy that that all hap- would happen mechanically, right? It's like you hear that happening. It's 1942. It's a blimp. Ballast getting dropped sounds as if it's manual. You know what I mean? It sounds oh, yeah. like a man. It sounds like something you would do. That's manually. actually a good point you make because this is an automatic thing, right? You don't have to be manning this thing, uh, the airship, in order mm-hmm. for that to happen, right? So again, it adds to the mystery um, as far as the timeline goes. 
where these two airmen disappeared. We don't really know. Mm-hmm. After we get the Daisy Gray witness reports, that's when things kind of go blank. Yes. So the timeline starts to get dark. Yeah, we, I mean, did we mention at some point here that they, I mean, we can track the the total flight path later, but they obviously strayed off course, right? Mm-hmm. During during the course of this, there was a bit of an eight mile little uh, yes. detour. I don't even think they made it to Ray's point. No. And the question is, yeah, again, like you just said, like at what point did the did this blimp end up not having a crew? Because if there's an eight mile off course little run, why? <laughs> Is there a reason for that? And if it was piloted to that off-course area, that's extremely fishy. And that could lead into some of the speculation that we'll get into here. But let's talk about the crash landing, because this wasn't a ghost blimp until it actually hit the ground. (laughs) People thought that this was being piloted the entire time. Mm -hmm. So it hit ground in a place called Dally City. And the people on the ground that day had absolutely no idea what was coming their way. Certainly this had never happened before. (laughs) And they had no idea that this thing was not being piloted. One of the first witnesses, wow, this would have been terrifying. It was a man, he was a guy named uh, Mr. Tapovia, I believe his name was. Mm. And he was uh, much like the last guy Amber mentioned was uh, heading to the beach. He was actually at the beach. He had made it there and he was about to go for a swim when he described essentially he's walking towards the water and a massive gray towering monster uh, is coming <laughs> rushing towards him. Aww. I added in the monster there because I can just picture this. Like you're standing on the beach here, not look, you're looking down at the, at the sand and <laughs> you're looking for shells and then you look up and there's just this, think of the dimensions we gave you guys oh, at the yeah. beginning there, this massive gray unpiloted monster flying directly oh, to- towards you at extremely low altitude. And I would honestly, I would think it's like Cthulhu coming after me or something like <laughs> put some tentacles coming off the side. And like that w- is essentially Cthulhu hundred <laughs> percent. So anyway, I, needless to say he was shocked and, but luckily it passed over top of him and there was a sand dune or a, a, a sand knoll hill, whatever you want to call it. It hit into this mm-hmm. uh, and, Basically, it launched it on an upward trajectory, scraped off the side of a canyon, actually knocked off one of the depth charges, uh, which was later recovered, <laughs> luckily. Another resident, love her name, Bunny Gillespie, hmm. she was interviewed about the incident, and she saw the blimp heading towards even more buildings in Dally City. So it hits this sand dune, it launches up, and now it is careening towards Dally City, California. She was returning home from Sunday school, And she saw this blimp sort of deflating as it's flying overhead and basically stated, this thing, this kind of thing just doesn't happen in Dally City. And I put this in quotes. It's like, does this really happen anywhere, Bunny? But anyway, direct quote from another uh, witness that day. But either way, she was pretty shocked about what was happening, right? So it's continuing into the city. It almost actually crashes into the house of a lady named Mrs. Appleton, who ended up grabbing her eight-year-old daughter and hiding for their safety. I know it's such classic (laughs) names, right? And she heard the chains that were still, that were, I guess, hanging off of the gondola still attached at this point, dragging across her roof as the airship, as the airship rather, uh, came right over top of her house, like literally like feet above her house. So like scraped along the roof kind of thing? I mean this would have been absolutely terrifying for people. They would have thought maybe this was like an attack almost, right? Like if you weren't seeing the blimp coming in, you'd be like, what is this thing? What the hell is going on here? Another guy, one of her neighbors uh, named Richard L. Johnson, he was out polishing his car. (laughs) And unluckily for him, uh, he kind of wasting his time polishing the car because it ended up getting slightly crushed uh, in, (laughs) in in the aftermath here. But he noticed this, partially deflated blimp coming 
towards him. He runs inside to grab his mother because he doesn't know what's going on and wants to protect her. So really, really strange and obviously, you know, caught people off guard. What the hell is this massive object? It would have really freaked me out too. Then it finally lands and miraculously nobody is hurt. It's bonkers to me how nobody got hurt during this. It's probably just because it was so slow. I know, but I mean, it's a massive thing, though. It's like, it's going to knock some stuff over. It might start some fires or something. Cause a car accident, potentially. Mm -hmm. Finally, this thing lands. The cabin or the gondola smashes into a utility pole right in front of the same guy, the Johnston home. It breaks off the cross arm, and the force of this collision actually swung the blimp's tail uh, over into a bunch of electrical wires and caused a ton of sparks scattering across the pavement. And everyone's just waiting with bated breath because, thank God, the fuel tanks of the blimp didn't leak Mm -hmm. because that would have been not a good scene in downtown Daly City there. One of the first people to react to this was a firefighter, an off-duty volunteer firefighter anyway. His name was William Morris, and he ran right into action. He's the one who actually stated it's a miracle it didn't catch fire because it struck the telephone wires across the street. He was the first to realize that there was actually no one inside the cabin. (laughs) Okay, so this is the first indication that this is indeed a ghost blimp. So he stated this to the fire department afterwards, but shortly after he goes in there trying to save people, local fire department of Dowley shows up, also goes in to check the cabin to find no crew. Bizarre. The cabin door was mysteriously open. And the radio that they used to communicate with surface ships and otherwise was dangling outside of the door. So because of this, they thought that somehow, some way, they must have got caught up in the rest of the wreckage. Like, that's the only thing that makes sense. That's now deflating helium, and the pilots must still be in there somewhere. So they begin slashing through the rest of the balloon and the wreckage in an effort to try to free the the crew. They find nothing working on this for a little while and they see no sign of Cody or Adams. They had somehow some way vanished from the blimp. I've got some more details on the door being open as we head down here. Very, very strange. Incredibly strange. And I am so thank you for just giving that very beautiful rendition there. We've got some even more strange elements about what went on the ground for this initial investigation. First, A quick word from our sponsor. Hey, everyone. You know, one of the biggest things in the past that held me back from reaching out to find a counselor or finding someone professional to talk to was really one thing. Time. People always justify putting their mental health on the back burner. I'm too busy. I'll make an appointment next week. Or it's not too bad. I don't need to talk to someone about it. It's fine. But you know what? It's not always fine. And that's why BetterHelp.com is so awesome. First off, it's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and you can connect with a licensed professional in under 24 hours for professional help, not self-help. You can benefit from the huge advantage of BetterHelp being available on multiple platforms across the globe. So you have the help you need wherever you are, without ever sitting in an uncomfortable waiting room. Time problem solved. This is all on your time. They are 100% committed to you from the get-go, and you'll get matched with the best person for what you need. And it's easy and free to change counselors if the need arises. Amber and I want you, our listeners, to start living a happier, healthier life today. And as a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com portal. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash portal. 
and we're back. All right, well, before we get back into the weirdness about the initial investigation after the airship crash, mm-hmm. we just had a quick housekeeping note. We want to welcome Ben. Woohoo! Hey, Ben. Welcome, Ben. He is the latest member to join us on Patreon. Woohoo! Yeah, thank you so much, Ben. That's awesome, man. Yeah, that's really awesome. We're really happy to have you and uh, all of our amazing Patreon supporters and our lovely community of weird folks just like us. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Lots of fun over there. Um, And also, we did want to say, obviously, Happy early Halloween to all of you. Oh, yeah. Uh, We love this time of year. It feels like Christmas to me. And we're actually planning a special release, a spooktacular Halloween episode. So stay tuned for that one. Also, we do have the annual Halloween contest. So this time we're opening it up a little bit. So all forms of spectral celebrations, not just pumpkin carving, even though really like Who's going out and doing things this Halloween? Nobody, I would imagine. Yeah, not as many parties and things like that. But we know you guys are dressing up in awesome costumes at home. And well, even, yeah, spooky makeup, cool decor, uh, fun cocktails, whatever you're into. We want to see it. Totally. Or hear it or whatever you got. Yeah. Um, imagine, like, if you do your own, like, haunted Halloween, um, haunted house or something, we want to see it. And so it's all a big contest. Whoever has the most spooky spirit wins uh awesome little prize pack we're putting together with all of our networks so the strange pods network uh straight up strange it's gonna be sick it's gonna be really cool we've got some original art pieces we've got a wicked network t-shirt we've got Mm -hmm. some awesome canadian halloween candy we're gonna throw in there as always of course and uh obviously some other few fun spooky things too oh no it's awesome so guys go follow at strange pods on instagram that's the network page and uh yeah the details are over on there we're gonna do another post uh with with all the 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 contest details and stuff but there is a post on there go check it out follow us uh at the network at strange pods and obviously at into the portal podcast if you don't already as well what are you doing come follow us on there (laughs) exactly so you can keep up on all of our fun things going on around the show and around the network. And on that note, we actually wanted to welcome a new network show. Yes. Woohoo, which is bringing all the spooks together. We got the Spooky Science Sisters <laughs> podcast. This is amazing, guys. Uh, hosted by Paige and Megan. These are two scientists and sisters with a love for all things spooky. Uh, so they actually bring you a discussion about possible scientific explanations behind the supernatural. Yeah. So they go from anywhere from ghosts, aliens, cryptids, so much more. So basically all the crazy shit we like to cover, but from a scientific lens. Yes. And so you can put on, like they like to do the Scully approach. So you can put on your skeptical thinking hat and uh, join them every other week for creepy conversations, lots of laughter and some uh, science as well. Hell yeah. 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 So happy to welcome the spooky science sisters uh, again into the network at Strange Pods. Mm -hmm. Now let's get into... Some of the oddities, what was particularly strange about the initial findings on the ground? Mm-hmm. So, hmm, let's see here. You come across a crashed airship, a military airship, with both pilots missing. So some other aspects that kind of pointed to some particular strangeness aboard this airship was the idea that there were two or three life jackets missing. Obviously, regulations required Cody and Adams to wear life jackets while they were patrolling over the water, which, again, kind of, like, 
alludes to the idea that they might have exited the ship while it was aboard water. Right. However, or sorry, aboard water, <laughs> above uh, water. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but again, right, this is just something to point. The engines were in perfect working order. The ignition switches were still on. The instruments and flight controls were operating normally, just how Riley Hill had left them. As well, the fuel tanks had about four to five hours remaining, so they were in good condition to continue on. No reason to abandon ship. No. That's for sure. Another interesting aspect was the idea that a military briefcase containing classified materials, including secret codes, was found where it was supposed to be behind the pilot's seat. Again, it's like all these things that are in place, but might lead to something more mysterious. Like, you know what I mean? It's almost like it adds up, but again, it's almost because it adds up, it doesn't add up. 100%. Yeah. It's <laughs> there's, like, no, there's no reason for them to not no, be there. No. It's like the Mary Celeste or something. I mean, we haven't covered that before, but it's like, yeah, stuff is just in place. In place. Exactly where it's supposed to be, essentially. It doesn't seem as though, like, even their lunch was partially eaten and still on the little table where they were, where I was aboard the ship. Yeah. As well, I think it was, I think it was Adam's cap was found uh, near the co-pilot's, uh, just on the dash, you Which, know what I mean? Just totally just normal, yeah. whatever. Does not indicate a struggle or anything like that. That's for sure. As well, all three of L-8's parachutes were still aboard, along with uh, the life raft that would have provided them with their only source of, you know, flotation yeah. above water if they abandoned ship above the water. I mean, other than the life jackets, but yeah, pretty precarious, right? Like, you, I mean, yeah. You really don't want to be in like, the ocean. The, yeah, exactly. The Pacific Coast is quite cold. I know we're talking about California, but still... Still. Luckily, it's August. I mean, it's summertime. Luckily. All water's cold to me, so. All water's cold to me. Oh, God. So basically, it appeared as though these two officers, Adams and Cody, had seemingly vanished inexplicably, correct? This was one of the most heavily trafficked areas along the coastline, San Francisco to the Farallon Islands. Yes. It's tracked by, there's multiple ships, planes, like we mentioned, there was the Daisy Gray, there was the other, uh, oh my gosh, it's escaping me right now the name, but it was the Navy Oh my gosh, thing. yeah, that's escaping me as well. There's we a lot of things, there. as well as these multiple witnesses on the ground. So none of these people reported seeing anything eject from the airship. No. Obviously, we're talking about a span of a couple of hours, right? Starting from the time where it started to get suspicious, where they report going to see the oil slick at 7.42 a.m. Right. Up until the crash landing at about, what was it, between uh, 11 and noon kind of thing. So that's quite a few hours. Riley Hill, actually, the guy that we mentioned before that was supposed to be aboard the ship as well, but was told to leave, actually said, this was a direct quote, the ignition switch was still on. The radio was still on and working. Hmm. Hmm. Nobody had touched my fuel valves. They were set up just the way I'd left them. We still had another six hours of fuel. So in his mind, they still had another six hours of flight time. Hmm. The radio is the weirdest part to me in all of that because of the fact that there was no communications. Right. That is probably one of the most bizarre aspects about this entire story to me and maybe points to something paranormal going on. But again, we'll get into that in just a sec. Sure. Of course, the U.S. Navy immediately launched an investigation. So this was an intensive search for these two missing airmen. 
the raid wardens and San Mateo County Highway patrolmen uh, spent the night combing the area where L8 had drifted ashore. So near that beach there where I can't remember the name of that guy. <laughs> oh, Mr. Tapovia, poor guy, <laughs> poor sap. Yeah, exactly. And for the next three days, uh, this search continued. Yes. The Coast Guard searched the Pacific. There was Navy ships, planes assisted, all this stuff. And despite calm seas and good visibility, there was no sign of Cody or Adams. Yeah. And never, ever was ever no again. they were never found never found and i mean yeah it's sad really when you think about it it's it's a bizarre story but there's all mm-hmm. like a lot of the things we cover there's an element of that but the quite the key question here following this navy investigation is essentially like you said the radio is the is the linchpin here why did cody and adams stop broadcasting if their radio was in working order what caused these two men essentially to either abandon their airship in mid-flight on purpose or what else could have happened causing them to do that? What happened between the time that they saw this oil slick around 742 and then the point where the L-8 crashed ashore? <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Or came ashore essentially around 1115 and then later crashing into downtown Daly City. You know, absolutely bizarre. I mean, are you ready to jump into theories? We might yeah, as well. We got lots of questions and there are some really fun theories out there, like some pretty far out ideas. I should say not fun, <laughs> fun yeah, to talk about. Definitely yes. far out ideas. Yes. One of the less far out ideas that I, I'll jump off, uh, I'll kick things off with right away is the idea that they're going, they're, they're going low to investigate an oil slick. And there's people that threw out this idea that maybe, uh, a rogue wave hit the uh, gondola at a low altitude and they got washed out. There was no evidence of this whatsoever. Obviously, the radio is still in working order. There's no water damage. There was nothing else on board to indicate this in the gondola. No. You'd imagine their lunch and possibly the hat would have been washed away too or knocked off the ship. Exactly. Plus, weather was fine. Rogue waves are pretty rare. They do happen even on things like the places like the Great Lakes and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. Doesn't seem to make sense. Not to mention, there was no report by any other ship in the vicinity of this. Nothing. The... Most interesting theory that we want to kick things off here is either captured by the Japanese or willfully boarding a Japanese submarine. Yeah. So the theory here would be somehow that the blimp was either partially lowered and the men were forced to surrender at gunpoint, presumably at some sort of a distance somehow, and captured by the Japanese because that was their job. They were patrolling to try to spot Japanese subs. Yeah. That, I mean... before we even go into speculation on that, like, what's your initial thought on that idea? The concept of them somehow being above the water in a blimp, a patrol blimp. You have the advantage strategically. You've got depth charges. And the only thing I would point to that might support that is the fact that there were two ships in the vicinity, the Daisy Gray, the fishing ship, and then also the Navy freighter. So perhaps they were within range to communicate that they were going to attack those ships unless the two airmen went aboard. That might be my only reasoning why they would be even remotely, like, you know, like, not in a in the strategic advantage. Yeah. But the very fact that those codes were still left aboard kind of negates that to Potentially. Me, unless the Japanese weren't aware of those types of things being aboard ships like that. Or. And there was. Okay. I'll let you get into some. Well, I just had a theory on the, on the briefcase too. The idea that it was found, it was intact, but maybe what was in it had been swapped out. Maybe what was, maybe what was 
quote unquote the secret codes on there that had been transported mm. was made to look as if nothing had been touched. So it was a decoy. Maybe potentially mm-hmm. a decoy. Military doesn't want to admit to it. Oh, I see. So they're not admitting to it. They're not even getting into the idea that there was perhaps an exchange for the release of these two individuals, perhaps. If you want to go the other end, the willful abandonment, and uh, this goes into espionage, obviously. Yeah, Uh, yeah. (laughs) I mean, so the one thing I added in here was like the Navy board inquiry. The only thing that you could kind of potentially tie into this idea that, that that there was sort of espionage involved or or or, or surrender to the Japanese to capture was this final quote that the board concluded that after careful analysis the evidence indicates that there was no reason for voluntary abandonment of the ship they believe that the abandonment was involuntary either implying you fall out or you're forced out accidental or yeah exactly something went wrong or right? there might have been an altercation between the two. Now, I mean, it's the same exact process if it's espionage and they are indeed spies and they do exit the ship. The result of the inquiry is that it was involuntary because that's what they would assume. They're, mm-hmm. mil- they're, they're U.S. Navy pilots. They're not going to – they're not traitors. It's not trees, high treason here. They're just going to assume – the best, right? They're not. Gonna, they're not going to automatically assume that these two are spies that just lowered themselves into a Japanese sub. Yes, if there's no evidence to indicate that, obviously, too, even just during the war effort, you'd want to uh, calm fears. You wouldn't want the public to necessarily know. So, I get maybe there would be a cover-up element too. Right. The other aspect tying into this kind of sorta was the door. So like we said, at the, in the crash site, the door was open, the radio was dangling out. There was multiple other airship pilots that uh, were quoted after the fact saying that it would be virtually impossible to open the door into its fully latched position during flight. So what does that mean exactly? Like these doors were faulty on these ships. They did have issues with the latches not being perfectly <laughs> closing properly, hmm. but Riley Hill exited before the flight, latched it. Everything was perfect, hunky-dory in her, in his words, right? right? This specific airship, the L-8, didn't have that problem, or it wasn't documented to have had that problem in the past. The model in and of itself had, but this ship they were on never had that reported in an incident report or in its, in its past. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't prone to this happening. So this door being flung wide open, there was uh, speculation that it actually could have been from the, uh, the fire department. They go in guns blazing, trying to save to see what's going on. And maybe it was only in a partially open position and forced into its fully latched position. So that totally kind of skews the perspective as to... So when you say latched, sorry, I'm just trying to pick... Latched means open? Like locked open. So like picture you're like opening a door and like if you only open it 45, like partial way, it could like, like it could keep swinging. But like if you open, you know what I mean? Almost like a, I don't even know what's a good example. Like a, like a, like a door on an RV when you open it and then you hook it on the side so it doesn't keep flapping in the breeze or something like that. I I get what you're saying. Like that's what I'm picturing when I, when I I read this description. You generally want things to be secured on a ship, like an airship, you know. (laughs) Especially if there's the chance of falling right out of the door, like cartoon style yeah that just seems yeah very comical very like uh, bugs bunny-esque yeah kind of thing. yeah like this was piloted by wiley coyote or something like <laughs> how does that even happen you know what i mean the flip side of course like we've already said is espionage they lowered themselves down handed off the codes and replaced the ones in the briefcase with decoys that was that that's that's a theory mm-hmm. i tossed in there i never saw that in any of the uh reports we were looking at. I think that's wild speculation. You don't even have to replace them necessarily. You can just take photos of them. 
potentially. Yeah. Give those. Give the film. It's like the classic, the microfilm. The microfilm. <laughs> yeah. I mean, these guys did have experience with these types of drops and stuff, right? Like getting really close to craft. And Cody, even though he was the younger of the two, like we mentioned off the top, he had flown L8s to deliver precious cargo. Like he did a special mission to the USS Hornet uh, right before the ship was uh, heading to uh, a raid over Tokyo. Mm-hmm. And so he you know, held the LH super steady, uh, lowering... Uh, uh, essentially like bombs down to the flight deck and resupplying these ships. So it's exactly the situation I'm picturing in my head in some sort of a James Bond-esque espionage like swap over. Yeah. Well, yeah. even bombs obviously are way more delicate than papers. Right. The flip side of this and going away from Cody to Adams is that, like we said, he had connections technically to Berlin, uh, in that he was decorated by the German government in the late 1930s prior to the war for his efforts in the Hindenburg crash. He was on site that day and was recognized as a hero for basically rushing in and rescuing people from from the blaze of of the Hindenburg. Crazy. And so he had direct uh, dialogue with uh, Hermann Göring, Oh, yeah. And other members mm-hmm. of, of the eventual of the Nazi Party. Okay. And uh, I'm not saying that he was a Nazi, but that is just kind of a curious connection, if you think about it. Was he Aryan? <laughs> I mean, they were both he... white. <laughs> but I'm I mean, like, curious, they, uh, like, like it, yeah. that is just kind of strange, right? Like 37. I mean, this was relatively hmm. close. When was Hitler on the cover of Time? It I think it was, it was 38. The, right. So this or 30, is 38 or 37. This is right on that precipice, and then obviously a year, you know, a year after that, 38 is when we shit hits the fan 39 starts to get weird and then things get really bad so i don't i put those in opposite 38 is weird 39 right it's bad yeah invade (laughs) poland right so i don't know i I, there's no real connection to be made there other than just this but i mean who knows he's a mil he's a u.s military if he was like a civilian that had these connections that might that doesn't that means nothing strategically to the germans though at the same time so like that's interesting. And you never really know. I'm not going to say Adams was a uh, Nazi sympathizer. I think that's definitely going a little far. But that's interesting. It's just just to, just, just to speculate on just a tiny bit. And to say maybe perhaps, yeah, because he, he had been celebrated by these people. It does, it does depend on your own personal psychology to a certain degree. But if you choose to identify with that, and it's almost like, you know, that cult sort of thing where you start to kind of like, go to the yeah. um yeah just go to the opposite of what you're told to believe your entire life and, and for a lot of people sometimes that's effective totally mm-hmm. and you know we haven't bucked up to purchase ancestry we've been talking about it for the show for a long time but like i i didn't get the details that's on these guys actual uh like past as far as they're they're where they're from you know what I mean? Like where... Mm, like their for, family heritage, yeah, to, when they actually emigrated to right. the U.S. Because that would definitely tie into some of that potential. Yeah. I don't want to uh, smear this guy's life. No, <laughs> because that's I, definitely I, not I, the I, I, But that is a curious connection, though. It is interesting. Right? It's the middle of the war, and you had a direct dialogue with Herman Goring. Well, if we're going to smear one guy, let's smear them both. How about... <laughs> <laughs> I love how you pronounce that. I love it, too. A little bit of cream cheese. <laughs> Good smear on there. Yeah. Um, but there are some people that will point to this rumor that flew around shortly after this happened that the two men were involved in a classic lover's quarrel. And this is an unsubstantiated rumor that suggested that basically the both men had been involved with the same unidentified woman resulting in the classic Hollywood climax of both men engaging in a struggle only to be 
mutually thrown from the airship. Uh, very fanciful, and uh, obviously there's very little, and by that I mean absolutely nothing, to go on to support that. They and were both married. They were both married, exactly. So that's, like, where was the rumor that they were involved, like one of the wives was involved? Or, no, it, or was, another it, woman it was an unknown outside. third woman. Exactly. So I'm just going to call BS on that because I just I just think that's too easy and obviously yeah if you want to go like Occam's razor like you know the easiest explanation is the most likely which we should go to first but I don't think this is the most likely well it's not I I agree because it's not corroborated by like the Riley Hills of the world who are like around these people who would you'd think they'd be able to perceive some tension or something like that why would you unless your plan from Jump Street uh your Cody it's your first it's your you've just been commissioned it's your first flight as a patrol officer unless your whole plan from from right from the beginning is to murder uh or sorry adams to murder cody mm-hmm. then why would you even get in in the first place your first flight you'd be like i hate this guy like he's well they would the have same been, woman right like they would have just, been assigned they wouldn't have it's the same with the sl1 disaster right, right both of those men were put on the same shift they were right. they were assigned but that. you'd think that someone they know would know about that this would come out in later investigation like they don't have a single well, friend why, or person that they mentioned it to that's why there's a rumor going around well, there no, were but where did the there were whispering where did it start though nobody knows i'm nobody calling yeah no answer. i'm calling bs on that too in my mind take away the element of the woman and you do get again like we kind of already speculated on the idea that perhaps there was some insubordination or some inability to basically play ball with a younger officer in command which i'm not even again i feel like we're just like (laughs) schmearing adams to the (laughs) to the utmost degree but you know what i mean like that could potentially be an issue it's wartime tensions are high Perhaps some things were said. Who knows? These guys, like, they're all military men. They're all hanging out, presumably, at the same bars and the same, like, you know, cultural locations, things like that. Maybe they did hate each other. But we, again, have nothing to support that. So let's go with the military's preferred version. This is kind of boring, and we did kind of mention it. It's not boring, but it's just kind of, like, mundane in the sense that it basically is the idea that it was a repair gone wrong. Yeah. The repair gone wrong. I repair mean, gone wrong, and this resulted in both men being ejected from the gondola of the airship. So this yeah. was reported by History.net, and they talked about how the Navy inquiry actually found some interesting things, like we already said, with the door. Yes. So this is a direct quote and reads as follows. There may have been issues with the safety latch on Elliot's door. Doubts as to the fastening of the safety lock at takeoff and adequacy of the latch suggest the possibility that the latch might have been released accidentally, permitting a passenger to fall out. Failure to use the radio or the life raft might indicate that the pilot hoped to recover his passenger, so his co-pilot, very quickly. Uh, The fact that both engines were stopped might be explained by the pilot's attempt to slow the airship while heading into a very light breeze. The open door latched full forward. The microphone and radio headset hanging out the door lend credence to this theory. In such an attempt, the pilot might find himself to have gone overboard, and no other adequate explanation offers itself for the abandonment of an airworthy airship, end quote. Right. 
So that's interesting because, again, they are pointing to this general design flaw. Right. And suggesting that if one airman accidentally fell out, the other airman essentially fell out attempting to rescue him. Because he thought he could do a really, really quick recovery. You'd think that, that you would still drop the boat, the life raft. You would think that would be the first thing you'd do to help him. And you would think the second thing, or even before that, the first thing you do is actually radio to communicate the situation. Yes. That to me seems pretty standard. Yeah. And unless you really panicked and if something went on, like I'm picturing in my head, like I'm the obvious, like the actual um, person in command, yet the younger person in that ship and something goes wrong with the senior. So like the guy, um, oh my gosh, Adams, who was the older of the two, what if something happened to him? And then I am Cody, I'm the younger, but I'm technically in charge. What if I just panicked? What if I just like, but that goes against all of what we know about him because he was very level-headed, very good under pressure. Yeah. That was the exact quote. Yeah. <laughs> so in my mind, it's just like, that doesn't make sense. And to me, it's higher. Pre- trained for this Exactly. Stuff. It's, there's more pressure, I think, in a situation where all of a sudden you're dropping depth charges and it's like pretty intense than it is where it's like, obviously it's dangerous. Someone maybe fell out, but yeah, you'd think you'd radio it. You what? drop a life raft. The guy's wearing a life jacket. Mm-hmm. You, and then you you figure it out. Not to mention all of the witnesses aboard those two ships that saw them when they were initially dropped down to about 30 feet above the water, which presumably was the time that they were examining this suspicious oil slick. Yeah. They didn't see anyone fall out and they didn't see anything weird go on. All they saw was the two men aboard. Right. Clearly two men because they were that close. Yeah. Doing this investigation and then picking up and flying back towards the coast. So, again, adds to the mystery in my mind. And the whole, so just to go back to the title of of this theory here that you started off with, like repair gone wrong. There was nothing wrong on the ship. Exactly. I mean, Hill made that comment and things were, things were in perfect working order. And it's like externally on these ships, there's not a whole lot of things you would need to repair. It's like nothing. It's not like it's like you're going on the wing of the plane, like got to. No. We're going down. <laughs> and not like, to mention, it's like they're within the range of Treasure Island. Like, they could just go drop down and get the repair done on the ground. Why wouldn't you just do that? You know what I mean? Very curious, indeed. Kind of leads into this next theory here, which, again, you could sort of juxtapose to the espionage thing, too, because this idea that they essentially both together went AWOL. Like... Vanishing, And I mean, I guess the the technical definition of AWOL, I always think of Vietnam when I think that. I think of like X-Files episodes where it's like, oh, that unit went AWOL and now they're just making up their own missions and they're doing their own thing. I don't think it would have been like that for these guys where it would have been like, you know what, we're doing our own patrol. We're doing that. Like, we're just like, we've lost it a little up here, but we're doing that. I see it more as like, screw this, we're out. Right? AWOL. What's the exact, because that's an acronym. What's that? AWOL. Yeah, like you hear that word all the time. Absent without official leave. Right. Interesting. But interestingly, even more is the idea that it's connected. It's without the intent to desert. So the idea that you might have just gone astray along your mission. Right. But I think people have definitely interpreted it as the opposite of that, where it's like intent is there and they're not coming back. Like you were saying, yeah, with like Vietnam is almost like when they defect Almost, right, and yeah. then they go live in the jungle with the locals and live out the sure, rest of their lives. Kind of right, thing. that's what I think when I think a wall. Me but. too. That's what I sort of my brain went to right away. But I mean, what supports this theory? There's not a ton of 
evidence-wise, obviously, that points to this, but some will go back to the incident right before takeoff with that third crew member, machinist Riley Hill, when he was told to remain on the ground. So allegedly that the ship could support extra weight was just his speculation. They didn't say that to him specifically. But does that indicate that they mm. wanted to do their own thing? We, we can't have this third person on board because we've got this plan, we've got it together, and we're, we're piecing the scene. I don't know. That's That seems so inappropriate slash really poor planning and to add to that there was nothing to suggest that these men had literally like planned their lives to disappear like they hadn't left anything for their wives or their family nothing at all no and then obviously everything was in place like nothing like the life jackets were gone that's the The only little thing like which that's in place though as far as like what should be it's like if they aren't there then so should the life jacket the life jacket should also not be there totally that's regulation they were following regulations well that's just it yeah following regulations and then like willful abandonment it just seems like i said irresponsible because i like it just seems like they're making like this big show why would you make such a big show out of it why wouldn't you just not go into work one day? You know what I mean? Why would you literally abandon mid-flight, mid-routine, mid-whatever, and create this huge, not a scandal, but a huge story? No kidding. And a huge search. you think there'd be a lot more discreet ways to go about it. The only thing that could maybe make sense for them not disappearing mid-flight is going back to the lover's quarrel or even if it wasn't specifically a woman but whatever one is in the ocean and the other essentially realizes that they need to escape from the situation they are hiding in the cabin all the way into dally city and somehow manage to escape after the wreckage without being seen (laughs) that was another theory put forth that's interesting Right, because obviously there was never any like you said, they searched for, for for days. There's nothing found. If you're wearing yeah. life jackets, yeah, it's it's the Pacific Ocean. There's some squalls and stuff, but the weather was good. You're gonna be floating on the surface. Yes. It's gonna wash up somewhere. Not to mention there are multiple islands in the area too that you could wash up on. So many boats, so many planes, so many people, massive military search party. So this is a perfect segue into this next idea and theory. Yeah. Going extreme, going crazy. Going crazy. We're, we're, we're going with the idea that they perhaps were either abducted or they were sucked into a portal or something paranormal happened. Like to maybe these even that. Two. Exactly. Like maybe even that going like you're going to get into some electronic fog in a sec, but like they maybe it's just their brain, their minds were not. They went through a situation mm. into a sphere where all of a sudden they just weren't who they were. They you were know, made very strange decisions. This is literally an episode of Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. Yeah, it is. It's beautiful. Yep. And I, human side, humanness aside, where it is kind of a tragic story, like it really is. Because like, what if these two are still manning a blimp in another dimension somewhere and they think it's still 1942? They think it's still and, going on. And it's crazy. But before we get into all that craziness i did want to mention the idea that perhaps we have some sort of electronic fog element i know that a lot of times when we do have stories of electronic fog either it is sort of seen visually or it's almost like reported by the witnesses experiencing it to the outside world before they're cut off right because a lot of times they will get this radio communication cut off they will get instrumentations and things like that going awry and perhaps leading to the perception that they need to abandon the airship exactly is kind of the idea yeah uh it's 
yeah, this is interesting as a possible theory just because of the fact that they did fail to communicate anything beyond that 7.42 mark in the morning. Their final message saying that they were performing a routine duty, executing this inspection of an, a suspicious oil slick, yeah. all points to everything basically being in order. And then all of a sudden, not. So was was this even an oil slick? What was this thing that they reported? Ooh, that's interesting. You know interesting. what I mean? Like, that's another thing. And so perhaps this ties into... I don't even know, some sort of interdimensional element or, again, like electronic fog um, creating a haze. The only thing that I will say that doesn't really support this, obviously, is the fact that we didn't get anything else from the pilots, which you can use as evidence either way. And the fact that none of like the Daisy Gray, the fishing ship, for example, and the Kingfisher seaplanes that did witness it never saw anything as far as any sort of type of fog. However, perhaps this is only perceptible to the people that are experiencing it. Right. Um, so I don't know, like, what do you think about this? <laughs> what, what, what are your first initial thoughts? Well, I mean, I do think that it's possible that they went, they flew into a certain atmospheric condition that maybe isn't exactly electronic fog, like losing time, uh, obviously other than the radio being not, potentially not working for them or whatever, but just something that messed with their decision-making skills. Like they're just sort of messed with their perception of reality, maybe even right. That led to the eight mile off course, Mm -hmm. little ditty and maybe even led them to just do something crazy. Like they just straight jumped overboard for no reason. Maybe even without life jackets on life jackets tossed out the window and jumping into the sea. Almost like so inexplicable, almost like a Diala pass. Yes. None of the behavior makes sense. No. All of it points to self-destruction, yeah. essentially. And none of them, well, obviously the Diala pass people were found. These people were not found. So we will never know the extent of their injuries, how they died. If they died in this, perhaps they never did. I don't know. Maybe they lived out their days in Japan. <laughs> Who knows? I don't know. I don't know. It's it's. Exactly. It is Which inexplicable. Is why it is a mystery. <laughs> what, do we have any other things we want to mention here before we wrap well, up? Well, like, two things I wanted to mention. There's a hilarious one that does get floated online, a, a UFO abduction, so that they were essentially very much like, again, going back to some, some uh, of our favorite X-Files episodes, like where you're like on the plane and there's just all of a sudden, boom, right. snap of the finger and they're gone. Something along those lines. The question is, what would be the interest? What's, what's the, what's the point? It's typically like, it's not near a nuclear facility. This isn't a nuclear submarine or something like that. If you're going to try to tie it to like technology interest in like, why would these two be abducted? Also, I couldn't find anything, uh, corresponding to sightings of UFOs from that date from August, 1942. There was no noteworthy sightings. Although it is interesting to note that some of the early, uh, ideas of a Japanese attack off the coast were actually, uh, related to the story of the Battle of Los Angeles UFO sighting stuff, which, of course, is just a crazy story. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that got tied into those... In, those two things were tied together, which was kind of interesting. The one thing I you just gave me the idea for, I didn't add it into the doc here, was just the curiosity of... Was it actually an oil slick? That's a really mm-hmm. good idea. Like, that's an interesting thought. Yeah. And first thing that popped to my mind, it's actually probably crazier than the UFO abduction idea. And you guys are going to be either loving it or rolling your eyes at me because it's an Andrew type theory. But what if this mysterious black object, presumably because it's oil on the surface, was actually some type of creature? Maybe mm-hmm. they went a little too close to investigate and got the worst of it. Yeah. What if it was, <gasps> what if it was a, 
an ink slick from like the like uh what's it called like, like a, a giant, giant squid like a giant squid or an octopus <laughs> oh, okay mind you we don't have any reports of anything again being witnessed by those two ships right but there is a very notable uh sea monster serpent like creature that's been spotted off san francisco in the right. bay area yes uh, we've watched a few documentaries on that and oh, things covering yeah. that so there's definitely sea monster sightings in the area, but that's just kind of a, I just wanted to throw that in at the end because I feel like that's oh, a gosh. fun way to fun way to end it here. You can go cryptozoological. What about the idea it was a USO? Oh. So an unidentified submerged object. Forget the Japanese. We're talking Forget, uh, yeah. the abyss here. We're talking the abyss. Maybe Godzilla. No, I'm just <laughs> Anything under the water. What else we got here? Let's get the list out, you guys. Giant eels. Um. Could be anything. Let's see. Uh, Transformers. I'm just kidding. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> no, yeah. That, that, that is an interesting idea, though. Like, what if it wasn't even an oil slick? Because they never had a follow-up report. Or a decoy, they, right? Like some sort of a decoy slick yeah. of some kind. Or what if it wasn't an oil slick? It was the shadow of an even bigger ship above them in the air. And then it <laughs> So they were abducted. Just, yeah. Maybe. I don't know. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like they would have to like dematerialize. Almost like uh, the Scotty beam me up kind of thing. Right. It's like they just like disapparate. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> this, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's all crazy, crazy. guys. And mm-hmm. it's totally open to it because we have no idea where there's no evidence there's they no vanished conclusion. into thin air yeah. so i mean we won't know what you guys think i mean do you really think that two extremely capable navy seamen were <laughs> like were pilots were fell out of a ship on a perfectly clear day that seems bizarre to me Both like that's just as paranormal to me as any of this stuff personally yeah i mean occam's razor i don't know two one maybe two I don't know. I don't know. But we want to know what you guys have to say. So send us an email if you don't feel like commenting in public on social media into the portal mailbox at gmail.com. We love getting your guys' feedback uh, on this stuff. And uh, hit us up on Facebook at Into the Portal Podcast. Follow us on Instagram, Into the Portal Podcast. Don't forget about the Halloween contest on the network account at yeah. Strange Pods. We definitely Share want to see your spooky celebrations with yes, us. Yes, indeed. And uh, as always, thank you so much to all of our Patreon supporters. Mm-hmm. Uh, check out the link in our bio uh, for our Patreon page, and you guys can see what we're doing over there. And uh, all of the links for ITP stuff uh, you can find below. Mm-hmm. So as always, thank you so much for listening to Into the Portal. Your gateway to the bazaar. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.